And uh, we are continuing in the Gospel of Luke. If you are new to Revolution Church, we like to study books of the Bible at a time and go through them verse by verse. And right now we're having a great time studying the Gospel of Luke and getting to know the real Jesus. Our scripture reader this morning is Patrick Ward. Hi, good morning, Patrick. How are you? Patrick's one of our four elders here at Revolution Church, and he's going to read God's Word for us. So if you all will follow along on the screen, Patrick, get us started here. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and he was, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord forever. And he rolled up the scroll, and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. When the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but, the name, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath." And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built and there that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits. And they came out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. 
This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word. And Lord, I'm thankful for a people who depend upon it and love it and cherish it. And may that always be our heart. Father, may your Holy Spirit open our eyes and our minds this morning so that we can hear what you want us to hear and see what you want us to see and to know Jesus better so that we can become more like him. Guide our thoughts and our hearts. Help me to uh, expound upon your word so that God's people can be more like Christ. And we ask in his name, all God's people said, amen. I saw this t-shirt recently and I just loved it. It looks like a phone call where it says, Jesus is calling, accept or decline. And that's, that's the title of my message this morning because we're going to see three geographical areas where people chose to either accept or decline Jesus. Um, if you look at a map of the area, there's basically three regions or three counties, Galilee, Samaria, and Judea. The Jews lived mostly in Galilee, the country folk, and in uh, Judea, the southern part where Jerusalem, the capital was, but in between was Samaria where the half-breeds lived, and there was a lot of racial tension between the two groups. Um, but you see, if you look at the River Jordan, it was about this area where Jesus was baptized, and we saw that last week where he started his ministry being baptized there. And then he was taken out into the wilderness, which is on the west side of the Dead Sea, very much desert-type climate. And so he traveled there to be tempted. And then we see that he heads north. He goes probably through Samaria, maybe another side, doesn't tell us how he got there. But he heads north to head back to the Galilee region, or that county, if you will. And he goes to his hometown, Nazareth, where he was born. I'm sorry, not he was raised. He was born in Bethlehem, but raised in Nazareth. And we'll also see that he visits several towns in the whole Galilee area, but he also goes to Capernaum. So when it mentions three areas, Galilee, Capernaum, Nazareth, Galilee is the county or the region, if you will. Nazareth and Capernaum are the two towns in there that it's going to be contrasted. Luke likes to use sets of three. We saw that last week where he, we learned about his baptism, his genealogy, and his temptation. The baptism, this is where the father says, this is my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. The genealogy proves that he's the son of God. And then in the temptation, what is Satan's question? Well, if you're the son of God, do these things. So those three things point to the one message of being the son of God. And like, like I said, Luke likes to use sets of threes. Even in these sets of threes, there's a set of three. The baptism is done in what? The name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. How many different types of temptations were there? Three kinds. The genealogy, you can even make some mathematical ideas that there could be sets of three. But um, in this story, there's three geographical areas, and that's how we're going to divide up the, today's message. Galilee glorifies Jesus, and then Nazareth says no to Jesus, and finally Capernaum commends Jesus. So let's jump right in here in verse 14. And Jesus returned. Returned from what? Well, he was led by the Spirit out in the wilderness, 40 days of no eating. Then after all that, when he was weak, fragile, vulnerable, that's when Satan tempts him. By the way, that's when he'll come after you usually too. When you're tired, when you're stressed, when you've had a hard week, that's when he will tempt you to say what you shouldn't say, do what you shouldn't do, do something in the name of stress relief that you know is wrong. That's what Satan will do. But Jesus returned from all that victorious, and now he's ready to jump in and start his ministry. And he's doing it the same way 
He handled the temptation of the wilderness in the power of the Spirit. We need the power of the Holy Spirit when times are rough and when times are going great, okay? You see, he could have this confidence of saying, well, I just kicked Satan's butt. I'm fine. You know, I'm good. He's like, no, no, I still need the Holy Spirit of God. You say, wait a minute, Gary. Isn't Jesus the Son of God? How does he need the Holy Spirit of God? What Jesus is doing is setting aside his deity and all the powers that go with it to prove to you and me, here's how a human being can live in the power of the Spirit. So that's what Jesus Christ is doing and setting that incredible example for us. And he comes to Galilee. Again, this is the area where the country folk are, and this is where his ministry is more accepted than it is in the, in the Judean area. And, and you'll see he's even more accepted in Samaria as well. But here's the contrast. And so a report went out throughout all the surrounding country. So the whole region is talking about Jesus. They, they've, heard, they've seen his baptism. They heard about his, his victories in the wilderness because Jesus was in the wilderness alone. So how does anybody know about that story? Unless he told them, you know? And so he's hearing about that. He's performing miracles. All of Galilee is like, yay, Jesus, team Jesus, okay? Except for one place, as we'll see, his hometown, Nazareth. And so everything spread the way it does today by word of mouth, okay? Even today with the internet and with social media and all that, that's even a form of word of mouth. But you will ask people, how did you start going to this particular church? A friend invited me. Someone told me. That, that's still the way things work. People like to hear from other people, did you like it? You know, was that restaurant any good? Is this dentist somebody you'd recommend? Word of mouth is still most powerful. And what's unfortunate is God's people will talk about everything from the Astros to their dentist to their favorite pizza place, but may not talk about Jesus. And we need to exercise that word of mouth. If you look at Christianity in the first century, realize this. With no trains, planes, or automobiles, with no internet, the gospel exploded and spread all over the then-known world. And of course, then it spread worldwide eventually. But in just in the first century, just how quickly the gospel spread was absolutely amazing. The Roman Empire, the most powerful empire on the planet, literally collapsed because of this new religion called Christianity, which was really not a new religion. It was Judaism being completed. And so it's spreading like wildfire because people are speaking up. People are talking. People were not ashamed. In fact, people spoke up even at the loss of their own life. They were told, hey, you deny Christ or we will, we will kill you. We will throw you to the lions. And so Christianity spread even because people were not afraid to speak up. And then it says, and then he taught in their synagogues. There's a lot of confusion today in churches about teaching versus preaching. And a lot of people really don't know the difference. But let me kind of give you the biblical view on that. According to people, not according to the Bible, but just according to people, the way they feel is that preaching is emotional. You get fired up, you, get, you, you cry during a sermon, you laugh during a sermon. It's very emotional, but teaching is intellectual. And it's more for academics. And that preaching is all about application. Here's how you live your Christian life. Here's how to be a better husband. Here's how to be a better father. And, all, and it's lots of application. We're teaching is lots of information. People think that preaching is very motivational. It's a lot of pop psychology, a lot of motivational stories, but teaching is just educational. And again, it, this is according to people. According to people, um, preaching is 
entertaining. You know, you'll see a lot of churches, especially mega churches, have all kinds of entertainment going on. It's kind of like it's a rock concert. Uh, you'll see like lots of lights. I saw one pastor kind of getting picked up by cables and flying around while he's preaching. Just lots of entertainment, a lot of really crazy things I think are over the line. I'm not saying we should be boring, but it's a lot of entertainment. And, and they think, but most people, when it really comes down to it, they'll say, yeah, that, that, that sermon was boring because it was just too much teaching. There's three problems with this way of thinking, at least. There's many more than three, but let me just give you three. First of all, it's wrong definitions. How people define preaching and teaching is not the way that Jesus defined preaching and teaching. Uh, Jesus taught two times more than he preached. Okay, So if you look at his emphasis there, Jesus, and he never preached without teaching. Sometimes he taught, but no mention of preaching, but, some, but he never preached without teaching. Um, it's not really an either or, it's both. We have to, as a pastor and in churches today, we need to be teaching and preaching, doing both, and not just picking one or the other based on our preferences. In Luke 20, it says, one day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel. You see what he's doing? He's giving information that is necessary so that he could proclaim the gospel based on that information. According to the Bible, not according to people, Preaching is proclaiming. It's declaring a truth that must be responded to. And teaching is explaining what that message is. Um, preaching is encouraging people to do what is being taught in the Scriptures. And teaching is equipping them to do it. It's one thing to tell you, love Jesus more. It's important that I tell you how to do that and what your steps are to make that happen. Uh, Basically, if you were to use illustration, preaching is like the building's on fire, and I tell you, hey, there's a fire, there's a fire. And you're like, okay, great, I'm, and now you got me excited, what do I do? And teaching is saying, hey, there's the exit. <laughs> you see, it's one thing to know the building's on fire, but if you don't know where the exit is, I'm not doing you any good. So you see how the two work together. To stay with that illustration, um, if people were not going anywhere, I'd say, hey, you know, you don't want to die. You know, the fire will kill you. In fact, if I, was, and I could teach you some facts like stop, drop, and roll. That will help you survive. You see how the, the two work together. And so I, and if I preaching, would be like, why aren't you running? <laughs> why aren't you running towards the exit? And don't you know that most people die of smoke inhalation, not of the flames? So all this information works hand in hand, proclaiming the truth that you want to survive through this fire. In Matthew 11, it says, When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went from there to teach and preach in their cities. Okay? They have to go together. You need to give people the, the, the information of the Word of God, the doctrine, the systematic explanation of it, and then proclaim what should they be doing in light of what they have just learned. 2 Timothy 4.2, it says, to me as a pastor and to all pastors, preach the word. This is what Paul is telling young pastor Timothy. Be ready in season and out of season. In other words, preach the word whether it's popular or not. Okay, And I will tell you, when I teach verse by verse, it makes me come to hard passages that aren't popular. They're out of season, if you will. But the Bible says I need to do it whether it's in season or out of season, whether it's popular or whether it's not. And that my methodology in my preaching should be reproving Here's what you're doing wrong. Rebuking, you shouldn't do that. <laughs> and then exhorting, here's how you can do what's right. And I should do it with complete patience, 
Because realizing that people like me are sinners and that we all struggle. And how should I do all that? By teaching them. You see how I'm preaching the word, but I'm teaching the word. Preaching the word is, hey, don't do this. Here's the right path. Teaching is, here's where the path is and here's how you follow it. Here's how you can be more Christ-like. And then he goes on to say in the same passage, Paul talking to Timothy, he says, for the time is coming. Now when Paul wrote this, that was in the future. I think that time is now. And just read this verse and see if you don't agree. When people will not endure sound teaching. Uh, some translations say sound doctrine. You say the word doctrine and most people cringe like, oh, that sounds boring. Okay? And they won't endure it because it takes work. It takes work to be taught. It takes work to learn. It takes work to understand doctrine. But instead, what they'll do is be having itching ears that will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. It's more about how I feel. I go to this church because they make me feel good. I listen to this podcast because it makes me feel good. It makes me feel encouraged. It makes me feel I can do all I can do. And it's all about passions or feelings. And verse 4 tells us a very sad commentary. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Wander off into psychology. Wander off into name it, claim it. Wander off into motivational speaking. And then that Often you'll see churches today where they read one verse and then it's a bunch of stories and a bunch of feel good. It's like, that's it? That's all you have? I'm thankful that that's not what we want. We want the Word of God. We need the Word of God. We are not, we don't worry about reading too many verses. It's the Word of God. We, we need that. That's what a good church and healthy church needs. Um, Walt Kaiser wrote a book called Toward Exeget Exegetical Theology, and most people would just be bored with the title. But listen to what he says. It is no secret that Christ's church is not at all in good health. In many places of the world, she has been languishing because she has been fed as the current line as, as it is, is junk food. All kinds of artificial preservatives and all sorts of unnatural substitutes have been served up to her. As a result, theological and biblical malnutrition has afflicted the very generation that has taken such giant steps to make sure its physical health is not damaged by using foods or products that are, are carcinogenic or otherwise harmful to their physical bodies. Simultaneously, a worldwide spiritual famine resulting from the absence of any genuine publication of the Word of God continues to run wild. If only we were as conscientious about our spiritual food as we are our physical food. We need to be fed and yes, Isaiah, we need to eat our vegetables, right? <laughs> we, some people don't like certain things. And I, man, I would love a, a good sandwich over a salad any day. But sometimes I got to eat the spinach. Sometimes I got to make myself eat what's right. And sometimes we have to endure sound doctrine. We have to say, you know, this may not be as entertaining as a movie, but I need this if I'm going to grow in Christ. And so he taught them in their synagogues. And this, again, Galilee in general was being glorified by all. Man, everybody was amazed with Jesus because not only the miracles, but his teaching. And you will see in this passage, these three sections, it's all about teaching, teaching, teaching. Jesus didn't go on a healing tour, although I praise God that he heals people. Jesus didn't go on a miracle tour, although I praise God that he does miracles. He went on a teaching tour. The focus of his ministry was teaching and preaching the word of God. 
God has chosen the systematic teaching of His Word to His people in His house by the power of His Holy Spirit on His day, the Lord's day, to be one of the methods that glorifies His Son the most. Think about that. When you have a church that drifts away from the systematic teaching of the Word of God, they've drifted away from what glorifies the Son the most. The, the focus of the glory of God is the teaching of the Word of God. So Galilee glorified Jesus, but Nazareth says no. They declined the call. They're saying no to Jesus. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. People know him here. And as was Jesus' custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. His custom, his habit, his lifestyle was on the Lord's day, I'm going to be in the Lord's house with the Lord's people studying God's word. That was his habit. He, and he stood up to read. Now, because he traveled a lot, when you'd go to different synagogues, you would, sometimes they would say, hey, you're a guest here today. Why don't you read the scripture for us? Maybe you can comment on us. And they would, they would use that as a tool. And of course, Jesus was known as a rabbi who traveled and taught. It's interesting in this passage, the word synagogue is mentioned. Anybody want to guess how many times? Seven, okay. The Bible likes that number seven. In other words, what he's saying is, I'm going to use the tool of God's house to spread my to spread the word, which is interesting contrast to John the Baptist who was out in the wilderness. And Jesus said, no, we're going to go into the synagogue. Not that John the Baptist is wrong. There was different method, different methodology for different reasons. And so that was his habit to go to God's house on God's day and read God's word. But you'll hear people say, well, I don't believe in organized religion. And so let me compare that with what Christ felt. Jesus was committed to a time, a day, a gathering, and a purpose. That was part of his custom. It's like, well, you don't need church to worship God. Yeah, you do. <laughs> now, that doesn't mean you can't worship through the week, but there is something different from when you're a quiet time and alone with God worshiping and when you gather with God's people. Something changes. Jesus says, there's where I'm at in the midst, and then you are gathering in my name because the church is the body of Christ. Okay, so Chris over here, he loves Ashley. But imagine saying to Chris, Chris, man, I like you. Let's be best buds. But can we leave Ashley out of the picture? I really don't like her. I don't need Ashley. Chris is going to say, it's a package deal, brother. You don't like me. In fact, that insults me. And you think if Chris loves Ashley, how much more does Jesus love his church? The Bible says he laid down his life for the church. He loves the church. He adores the church. The church is his everything. You think, well, that, that all sounds backwards. He loves us the way we should be loved. We don't love him the way he should be loved, but he loves us in spite of that. And to say that, oh, I love Jesus, but I don't really care for the church. Well, you can point to all kinds of excuses. The church is full of hypocrites, but that doesn't stop you from going to the gym. The churches, the grocery stores are full of hypocrites, but you don't stop shopping there. You know, we, we are uh, imperfect people worshiping a perfect Savior, and we need to be in community. And that community is called the Church of the Living God. Hebrews 10.24 says, let us consider, let's think about, let's stop and plan. How can we stir up one another to love and good works? The writer of Hebrews goes, I got an idea. Here's how it's done. Don't neglect meeting together. You really want to grow in Christ? You really want to think about how you can provoke one another to do right and be more Christ-like? Keep meeting together. Don't neglect it as the habit of some is. It's all about habits. Good habits make for a good life. Bad habits make for a bad life. You know, 
you have to get in the habit of brushing your teeth, thank the Lord. You have to get in the habit of wearing deodorant, taking a shower more than once a week. You have to get in the habit of doing right things. And sometimes when you break habits and you get out of it, it's hard to get back in it because the second law of thermodynamics, things, tends to, things tend to gravitate towards disorder. And so our habits tend to break down. And we're like, oh, I used to do this, I used this. And man, I'm having trouble getting back in it. The same is true with church. You get out of the habit of church, it's like, oh, it seems like it's so hard to get back in it because your flesh is fighting it. And then you also have a spiritual being who's fighting you as well. Satan doesn't want you to be here. In fact, one of the biggest lies Satan will tell you is when you wake up and you just don't feel good and you're discouraged and you say, you know, I don't think I'm even in the right frame of mind to go to church. That's the perfect time to go. <laughs> That's the perfect time to be there. People say, well, I'm depressed, I'm discouraged, whatever. And you know what? What, what do depressed people do? We've we may have all been through that. We want to sit in the dark alone and be by ourselves and do nothing. Three things that are bad for depression. Get some sunlight, not darkness. Get out of your house. Don't sit alone and go do something. Go be with God's people. That's that. But Satan will tell you to do the exact opposite. And so we are supposed to be encouraging one another. Let me ask you a, a question. I think you're smart enough to answer this. In fact, I know you are. How can you encourage your church family if you're not here? <laughs> right, again, and how are you going to encourage them if you're not here? I mean, if you're watching online and you're not here to say, hey, I'm sorry you're feeling bad. Can I pray for you? I can, can I tell you some of the best things that happen in church are before the sermon and after the sermon? It's not just the sermon. <laughs> in fact, that's probably not the best part. The encouragement, the familyness, the togetherness, and all the more as you see the day approaching, drawing near. What is the day? The second coming of Christ. Do we see it getting closer? Can you tell this world is the wheels have fallen off the wagon? And as you see it getting closer, he's saying, hey, it may be even harder to go to church. It may be less popular to go to church. But as you see the end coming near, you need to go to church even more than ever before. And, he, and so the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. I don't want to read too much into this, I, so don't, I'm just speculating here, okay? So don't take this as, as doctrine or anything. It says it was given to him. He didn't say, hey, can I have the scroll of Isaiah? They picked it and gave it to him. But he's God, he's in charge, so I think he knew what he was going to pick. And he obviously he had prepared for this, but again, that's just speculation. So he unrolled the scroll, and he found the place, he had to look because they didn't have chapter and verse divisions. And he found the place, which we, well now what we call Isaiah chapter 61. He's going to read the first two verses. And he doesn't read the whole thing. And I'll, I'll tell you more about that in a second. And here's what he reads. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. We just, Luke talks about the Holy Spirit more than any other gospel. And Jesus went into the wilderness led by the Spirit. He comes out returning in the Spirit. He's like, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And this phrase, upon me, was used a lot in the Old Testament, being the, the Spirit came upon Samson, and he you know, slew the Philistines. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Solomon, and his whole Spirit uh, left him, or, and Saul too, and then King David, and so forth. You see him for special purposes, for special accomplishments, the Spirit of God would come upon them. And he's saying something special is about to happen. Because he has anointed me, the word Messiah means anointed one. And of course, you anointed kings and other people of leadership in the Old Testament for, again, special missions, special projects. 
And Jesus is saying, hey, I've been anointed. I've been chosen to proclaim good news to the poor, okay, and to proclaim, he keeps reading from Isaiah, liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and liberty to those who are opposed, oppressed, sorry, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The year of the Lord's favor, anybody want to guess what that year is called? The year of Jubilee, very good. There was two types of Jubilees. One was every seven years, and one was after every seven sevens, which would be 49 years, so making the 50th year the year of Jubilee. That's when all debts were canceled. That's when all land returned to its original owner, and that's when people who were poor got a financial break. It got a a fresh lease on life. This is where our founding fathers actually came up with bankruptcy laws. So this is what Jesus is saying. I'm come to, to give something to all five of these groups of people. Giving good news to the poor, okay? Good news, your debts are canceled. Liberty to the captives, people who are slaves, people who are in prison, whatever, set them free. Sight to the blind and liberty to the oppressed. And then the year of the Lord's favor, the Jubilee. Do you see a little chiastic structure there? The good news to the poor is the canceling of the debt that comes with the year of Jubilee. Liberty, liberty, something commercial. And then what's in the middle? Sight to the blind. Did you know that in the Old Testament, all kinds of miracles done by the prophets, but nobody restored people's sight. That was something that was messianic alone. So he's saying, hey, I'm the fulfillment of scripture. I'm going to do these things. Now, Jesus did almost all these things physically. There's no record that he actually got anybody out of prison. Even John the Baptist asked, and he said, no, you're there for a purpose. Now, that doesn't mean Jesus didn't lead captives free, but all these, many of these things were done physically, but all of them were really implied to be spiritually. In other words, you are spiritually blind. You're spiritually poor. What did Jesus say in the Beatitudes? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see God. Okay, People who are being oppressed by the devil, blinded by their sin, who are needing to be set free. That's the main, that's the biggest need. And then he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. It doesn't say the hearts of everybody was stirred by him. It doesn't say that their minds were changed by them. They're just looking at him with physical eyes going, really? What? And, and right now they're not negative yet. They will be soon. But they're like just astounded. This is like, this is Jesus. We knew him growing up. He was an awkward teenager. He's, he wasn't perfect, you know, or at least they thought. They had all these perceptions. And you know, Joseph and Mary, they say something about a Holy Spirit baby, whatever, but we know what really happened, you know. And, and so it says, and he began to say to them, today, and they had never heard anything like this, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I am the person who's going to preach this message. I am the Messiah. That's what he's doing when he claims this. So at first they all spoke well of him and they marveled. And at, and at first it's all gracious words. They're like, wow, you know, we appreciate your gracious words, Jesus. This is really good. You, you did a really good job. We didn't expect that from you because Jesus grew up, just seemed very ordinary to them. And again, picture this as his hometown. At this time, it's estimated the city of Nazareth was about 400 people. You talk about a small town. You're talking about one-fourth of the population of Brookside Village. Talk about a small town. This is a small town right here. Imagine one-fourth. Everybody knows everybody's business, and everybody knows Joseph and Mary, and everybody knows Jesus, okay? And they're not 
It just seems all ordinary to them. And it says, all these gracious words came from his mouth. And they're like, hey, did this and this Joseph's son? Notice they didn't say it's Mary's son. It was kind of derogatory. Joseph was a pretty ordinary guy. Wasn't too successful. They were poor most of their life. And they're like, how is it that this guy is sounding so eloquent in his commentary? I think there was a lot more said than maybe this. I don't know. But they're impressed with this. And he said to them, so again, think about the, what the setting is. Read the room. They're like, wow, that was really good, Jesus. Good job, good job. They're marveling, very complimentary. And he's like, he turns it negative right away. He could have just absorbed all that and said, well, thank you, I appreciate it. Thank you, thank you, I appreciate it. Thank you, nice sermon. Thank you. But he's like, well, you know what? I have no doubt that you're going to quote me the proverb. I, I have no doubt you're going to say, physician, heal yourself. Physician, heal yourself is not a biblical proverb. It was a common saying, you know, that we, like, we have all kinds of saying, look before you leap. I mean, we say that in all kinds of cultures. The Greeks said this. Even the Chinese said something like this, physician, heal yourself, okay? And it's really a foreshadow of Matthew 27 when they looked at him on the cross and said, oh, if you're so great, why don't you save yourself, okay? It's a, but they're like, they're sitting there being complimentary, and he's, he turns the, the air of the room negative. He said, I'm sure you've got to tell me I need to take care of things before I tell you to get well. Like, oh, where did that come from? It came from because he knows their hearts. He said, what, what we have heard, you did not, what we have heard, you did not, you did at Capernaum. Why don't you do it here? So they're like, okay, yeah, Jesus, we, we, we were going to say something like that. Why won't you do miracles here? We're your hometown bros here. Why don't you do something here? We heard you doing all everywhere else. Why not here? Because he gets to the heart of the problem, that that's what they're, they're coveting. That's what they're having a problem with. Their unwillingness to believe miracles elsewhere and their insistence that miracles be done for them reveals their selfishness. That's what the problem was. Why can't, if they heard, if everybody in Galilee, like everybody in Galilee, we heard it, all of Galilee was glorifying Jesus, is saying, man, he healed a leper, he fed 5,000, he did this, he, he turned water into wine, and now it's like, oh, we won't believe it unless he does it here. It's funny how people do that. People will say, well, I believe in God, I believe in God. And, but uh, you know what? When I stopped believing God, I prayed and asked that he would heal my loved one, and he didn't do it. And now I don't believe in God anymore. It's like, wait a minute. There's people dying by the thousands every day all around you. You didn't believe them, but when it hit close to you, oh, now God has to answer your prayers. It doesn't matter if he doesn't answer other people's prayers. Now all of a sudden it's all about you. And that's what revealed their selfishness there. He said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. You can go preach everywhere else and everybody loves me, but here, no, you're not going to do it. And, that's just, and that was another proverb that was commonly quoted that, that the hometown prophet's never popular. Everybody wants to critique him. They know better. They knew him growing up. It's kind of like, you tell your kid, stop doing that, stop doing that, stop doing that. And they're like, why, why, blah, blah, blah. Some other dog comes and say, you really shouldn't do that. Oh, okay, thank you. I've told you that a hundred times. And they hear from another adult, all of a sudden it's, it's the gospel truth. And that's what's happening here. Jesus can tell them over and over again, not when I hear it. But Jesus goes to other towns and he tells them and they're willing to listen. He says, but in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. Now, Jesus is the greater Elijah. He's going back to 1 Kings centuries ago. And there was a famine going on land. And the people who were hurting, 
The people who were suffering the most were widows. They had no husband to take care of them. They, had no, they couldn't depend on the culture. There was no social welfare thing in the same sense it is today. And he's saying, so here's a lot of widows are suffering in Israel. That's important. And he says, when the heavens were shut up, there was a drought. Elijah prayed that it would not rain. It's interesting, for three and a half years. Do you know another time period that's three and a half years? The worst part of the tribulation. Okay? It's a shadow of that. And there's a, a couple other times with three and a half years is a time where God pours out his judgment. The, se- the tribulation is seven years long. The first half are eh. The second half is when really all hell breaks loose, literally. And it says a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of the widows in Israel. That's God's chosen people. And yet he's not going to help the worst of the people and their worst situation in God's land. But what does he do? He only went and helped to Zarephath in the land of Sidon. He went to Gentile territory, found a woman there, and he helped her. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet of Elisha. You got Elijah and then his predecessor, uh, Elisha. And yet all these lepers in Israel, he doesn't help any of them. None of them. Notice the phrase repeated there. None of them and none of them. That's the key here to understand this passage. He says he was, none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian, who was also a leper. And you can read about that in 2 Kings chapter 5. Excuse me. So what do a Gentile widow and a Gentile leper have in common? This is important. They saw themselves as undeserving. I'm not a Jew. They were totally helpless. There's no cure for leprosy. I'm a widow. There's no food. It's a famine. And both of them were desperate. Hold on to that thought because that's super important. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with anger, with wrath. Like, wait a minute. You're telling us we're the people of Israel and you're like Elijah and Elisha that you're not going to help us, but you're going to go help Gentiles? We deserve to be helped. And those people don't. They're dogs. Do you know what they do? Do you know the kind of lives they live? We deserve the help. Messiah's here for us. And he's like, no, you don't really understand what's happening here. You think you deserve, but you don't. And they rose up and they drove him out. This is like you drive cattle, drove them out. They were rough. In fact, I'm going to show you a video here in a second. And uh, I, I love this one. It's from the series The Chosen. And I love the series The Chosen. It's not perfect. Nothing is uh, except for the Bible. But even in this video, I don't think they're near as violent with him as I think they were in the Bible. Uh, anyway, um, they drove him out of the town. And they brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. They were planning to kill Jesus. And here's a Here's a picture of the actual cliff and where the red lines are pointing. There's like a wall, like a barrier to keep kids and people from falling off that they had built. Their archaeologists had uncovered, but they went over the wall and they were going to throw him down that. And you could picture what a deadly scene this would be. But passing through their midst, he went away. So they drive him to the edge of the cliff. They're going to throw him off. And it says he passed through their midst. Now, I don't know how to interpret this. Uh, we can only guess. The Bible didn't, doesn't make it very clear. No other gospel comments on this part right here. Some people believe, and I used to believe this, and, and I'm, I still am open to this idea, that Jesus somehow went into stealth mode, and they couldn't see him, and he just walked right through the midst. It's possible. Jesus can do whatever he wants. He could have got up and flew over them. I don't know, but he didn't fly. He went through their midst, 
whether they allowed it or whether they're just like, where, where did he go? And miraculously, they were blinded. All, both options are possible. But uh, I wanted to read this passage first. I wanted to teach this passage first. And then I want you to see it in The Chosen. I think that's more important because we want the, the Bible to interpret The Chosen rather than ch The Chosen to influence how we read the Bible. That makes sense? All right, so Matt, if you'll hit the lights. It's a little lengthy, but I think you'll find that it's worth it. So if you take everything we just talked about and filter that through what we're about to see. And turn the volume up a lot, Matt. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who kept us alive and sustained us for another year, who bestows kindness, restores, and redeems. Praise to you, Adonai, our God, sovereign over creation, who has chosen us from all the peoples. May your blessings be upon all who seek you earnestly. Bring joy to your land and gladness to your city. In your mercy, bestow on us a prosperous year, a bountiful harvest, and the promised arrival of Mashiach, your anointed one, the son of David. Amen. Amen. Thank you for that call to repentance and rest. And now for the reading and interpretation, we have with us Jesus Bar Joseph. He was one of my students in Torah class, and we've heard reports, some of them very positive, of his <laughs> rabbinic journey. Jesus. Thank you, Rabbi Benjamin. Peace. No, it's not easy to share in front of Nazareth's most preeminent rabbi, but I'll do my best. And I'm certain that uh, if I miss a word or two, one of you at least will speak up, huh? Don't worry. I wonder who it will be. A reading from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to the opening of the prison for those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The fulfillment of this scripture, as you have heard it, is today. This is the year of the Lord's favor. 
This is a year of jubilee, a year of the poor, the brokenhearted, the captive, and the blind are offered redemption. Here, now. We are with you. Keep going. Not bad for a carpenter's son, yes? <laughs> I mean, especially Joseph. May he rest in peace. Jesus, please explain why you stopped the reading before Isaiah spoke of the day of vengeance of our God, especially during a time of such oppression. The day of vengeance is in the future. I'm not here for vengeance. I'm here for salvation. You're here for salvation. What are you saying? You know what I'm saying. This year of Jubilee, this year of the Lord's favor, is not about release from financial debts. I'm here to provide release from spiritual debt. We're well, the chosen seed of Abraham. We don't have spiritual debt. Jesus. Yes, sir. We've been hearing about the signs and wonders. And now this? Are you claiming to be more than a rabbi? More than even the baptizer? No doubt one of you will quote me the proverb, Physician, heal yourself. The things we heard you did in Capernaum and in Syria, do here in your hometown. Yes? Why not? I get it. It's always easier to accept hard truths and even greatness from strangers than from those you know well, especially those you knew as awkward teenagers or even as adults, as some of you saw earlier today. Last year would make a more believable prophet. But this brings up an important truth. No prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Be careful with what you call yourself. This should be easy to prove. Dinah and Rafi, you say you saw it, yes? Yes. Yes, we saw it, but he did not claim this. A true prophet from Adonai would not deny his own people's signs and wonders. Listen carefully. When a great famine hit Israel during the days of Elijah, Three years and six months, there were many widows, yes? And we know how the Father cares for his chosen people, especially widows. But Elijah was sent to none of them, not a one. Instead, he was sent to a widow in Sidon, in Zarephath, a Gentile woman. Martha, what happened? She gave up her last flour and oil for one more cake and gave it to Elijah. Why would she do that? Elijah told her the Lord said to do so. Yes. The Lord said that he would make it so that her flour and oil would never run out. And she believed. A pagan Gentile in a pagan land. 
And she was hungry enough to know she needed God and to obey him. And so God sent Elijah to multiply her food forever. What about Elisha and Naaman? There were many lepers in Israel during this time. None of them were cleansed except Naaman. Only a Gentile, a Syrian soldier, an enemy of the Lord's people. But he was so desperate, he trusted Elisha. And his leprosy was cleansed. You may be the chosen seed of Abraham. You may be the people of the covenants. But that will not bring you my salvation. If you cannot accept that you are spiritually poor and captive in the same way that a Gentile woman and a Syrian leper recognize their need, if you do not realize that you need a year of the Lord's favor, then I cannot save you. Who do you think you are? This is what Hannah talked about. That he even called himself the Messiah. Are you claiming to be the Messiah? Or are you merely claiming to speak for the Lord as a prophet? Yes. You are a false prophet. <gasps> well, there is quite a thing to say. Jesus? Maybe we should leave. Lazarus, you're his friend. You cannot be involved. You know what the law of Moses says. We are all his friends, Aaron. We cannot say things like this. Jesus, stand up at once. Rabbi, please. Rafi, come with Jesus and me. No. We will leave, and you can all continue the service. Rabbi Benjamin has asserted false prophecy. And I cannot argue. You said you saw the miracle. He's saying only he can say. He us. did not use those words. It's what I meant. Jesus, you're not helping. Stop. He's saying we are not the Holy Ones chosen. Now, he did not say that. In words, a book of Moses. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, that same prophet shall die. Rabbi Benjamin, I beg of you, not this. Lazarus, it's fine. Jesus, they are going to... Jesus, if you do not renounce your words, we will have no choice but to follow the law of Moses. I am the law of Moses. Oh.
Jesus bar Joseph. Because you have repeatedly prophesied falsely and have offered no denial or renouncement of your blasphemous claims, there is no need to escalate this to the authorities. Do you stand by all that you said? I think I was pretty clear. Your father, may he rest in peace, was a righteous man. Your mother is a good woman. You take no pleasure in the shame you are bringing to their name, nor the grief this will bring upon Mary. But as from the law of Moses, whose life and words you have spat upon today, your sentence is death. powerful um this is the point that where that would have happened and uh in the story it says this is not going to happen not today because jesus was looking ahead to time when he would be killed for for the sins of his people not for his own sins but for the sins of the people so we saw how galilee glorified jesus and how nazareth said no to jesus Let's go to the final point quickly here. Capernaum commends Jesus. So Capernaum, you can see where that is. He travels a little bit farther north by the sea. That's where Jesus did most of his ministry because they were willing to believe and Nazareth wasn't. So don't be surprised that Jesus does most of his good work amongst those who believe and not amongst those who are unwilling. It says a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them, again, teaching them on what day. He believed in systematic teaching on the Lord's day. And they were astonished, and this is in a good way, teaching word that possessed authority. And in the synagogue, imagine this, someone who's actually in the synagogue, and you saw a good, really good picture of what his synagogue could have been like. There was a man who had a, a spirit of an unclean demon. He's in church, and nobody even realizes it. I think there was, he probably had episodes where his uh, demonic activity showed more than others. And this is interesting, this phrase, only Luke uses this, unclean, a spirit of an unclean demon. Now, it's a demon that causes uncleanness, in other words, um, to where he would be defiled. We don't know exactly what it was or how it manifested, but this guy is possessed by a demon, and he cried out with a loud voice. In other words, some translations say he screamed, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? See, that's a jab. Oh, you just came from your hometown. You got rejected there, didn't you, Jesus? Ha, Jesus of Nazareth. 
people in your hometown even like you. See the demon kind of being really sarcastic with Jesus, disrespectful. He said, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Ironic that the demon knows he's the Holy One of God, the Messiah, but the people of his own town didn't. He's saying, I know it, but people don't know. And he's kind of jabbing Jesus with this. But Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent, come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down, physically, demons can do things to people. I don't know how, I don't know how it works, but the demon literally threw this guy down on the floor in their midst, but then he came out of them. And this is what Jesus was saying. This is what I came for, to set people at liberty from this kind of spiritual uh, harm. But there was no physical harm to him. He fell down, but physically he wasn't hurt. And this really is a microcosm of the ministry or the work of Satan. He wants to bother people. He wants to throw them down. But ultimately, in the end, there's no real harm. Satan cannot do anything to the people of God. Satan can't do anything to human beings unless they allow him to. And they were all amazed. And they said to one, one, one another, What is this word? For with authority and power, he commands unclean spirits. And they actually come out. We've seen fakes who will you know, try to cast out demons that don't have, but this actually happens. And they think Jesus is amazing in contrast to what Nazareth thought. And so this passage began with reports, a report about Jesus. Here it says reports, plural. So the ministry of Jesus is growing exponentially. They went out to every place in the surrounding region. And again, in verse 14, it said the surrounding country. So has the report of Jesus reached you? Has the good news of what Jesus has done and is doing, has it reached your life? You say, well, I've heard it, but has it impacted you? Has it changed your life? Has it changed literally who you are? Look who Jesus came to reach. Good news to those who are spiritually poor, bankrupt. To be set free, liberty for those who are in the captive and being held captive by their sin. For those who are spiritually blind, he wants to give you his sight. He wants to give liberty to the oppressed. You feel like the world has treated you badly. Satan has had too many victories in your life. You're losing battles. Jesus wants to set you free. And he wants to give you the year of Jubilee where everything is set free and everyone's debts are canceled. Romans chapter 6 verse 23 says, The wages or what you deserve because of your sin is to die. But Jesus offers a free gift. The free gift of God is eternal life, not death, but eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. 1 Peter 3 says, Christ suffered once for sins. Whose sins? My sins. Your sins. He suffered even though he didn't deserve it so that you wouldn't have to. The righteous Jesus for the unrighteous, you and I, that he might bring us to God. And Jesus was put to death, not being pushed off a cliff here, but later, three years later, he'd be crucified. And he may, but he, three days later after that, he rose from the dead. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 says, If you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. You say, Jesus, I make you the Lord of my life. I give everything to you because you gave everything for me. And if you'll believe that in your heart, and you believe that he died, was buried, and that God raised him the dead, you will be what? Saved. Not might be, or if you keep living right, you will be saved at the moment you make that decision to be born again, to trust Christ as your Lord and Savior. Have you made that decision personally? So Gary, I grew up in church. That's not my question. Have you personally made that decision that you gave your life to Christ, you accepted his gift of salvation and your forgiveness of sins? Would you pray with me? 
Father in heaven, I thank you for this word. I thank you for Jesus and just the authority by which he speaks. Father, I pray if there's one here today that has not made him the, the Lord of their life, I pray that they would accept that authority. They'd be willing to repent of all their sin and give everything to you and believe that your death on the cross is all they need. All they need to be forgiven. All they need for heaven and eternal life. Thank you for the gift of salvation, even though we are so unworthy. Help us to see ourselves as the, the lepers and the widows who are totally helpless and desperate, and they have no hope outside of you. Thank you for Christ and his love, and we ask all this in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. If you have more questions about trusting Christ as Savior, please contact me. I'd love to have a conversation with you, buy you lunch, a cup of coffee, or whatever it may be. Um, man, can you think of someone you wish was sitting next to you this morning? I hope so. Would you take time to just invite them, give them a card, invite them, ask them to watch this on a QR code there, and they can do that. Um, let's, uh, Ashley, would you help me with Q&A this morning? So if you have a question, now would be the time. It looks like there's a few here already. You can uh, take time to go ahead and text that in. Or you can, if you don't want to text it, you can raise your hand. If you want to be anonymous, you can send it via text also, either way. All right. How are you doing this morning, Ashley? Okay. Hey, Evangeline, how are you? There we go. Good morning. You got snowmen on your dress. That's so pretty. Oh, stay right next to mom, okay? I think there's two questions with this one right here. Okay. When people today want to see miracles as proof of God, are they being selfish like the people in Nazareth who didn't believe the miracles from the eyewitnesses from the towns around them? And the people today are ignoring the testimonies and evidence from people around them? Uh, yes, um, that's not my opinion. Jesus said it's a wicked and adulterous generation that always seeks a sign. And he says only one sign will be given to it. And that's the sign of Jonah, that as Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights. So shall the Son of Man, Jesus, be in the belly of the earth three days and three nights and will rise again. The greatest sign that all the world needs is that there is a man who died, who claimed to be God in human flesh, pay this penalty for sin for all the world, and then said, and to prove it, I will rise from the dead three days later. And we call this 2023 because 2023 years ago, that man was born, he died, he was buried, rose again, and the resurrection, you cannot find his body. If skeptics could find his body, if archaeologists could find his bones, they'd say, see, Christianity is a farce, but they can't because he's not there. He's risen from the dead. So yes, people always will like, if God would just do something for me. Um, part two answer to that question. Remember the rich man and Lazarus? Lazarus went down to hell, and he said, send Moses, or send uh, Abraham, um, the the Poor man, Lazarus, I'm sorry, the rich man was in hell. Send Lazarus back to my brothers and tell them, because certainly if someone was to rise from the dead and tell my brothers, my brothers will believe. And he said, no, they won't. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them read their Bible. And because what happened is Jesus literally did rise from the dead and they didn't believe him. So people are, will only believe what they want to believe and that's what suits their own passions. Because we're all sinful. They won't even read their Bible because... And they won't read their Bible. Yeah. And you, people will say, oh, the Bible's full of contradictions. I'm like, show me one. Well, I've always heard that. I'm like, have you bothered to read the Bible yourself? No, just some college professor told me that. That's because you want to believe that. You know, we all investigate things if we really want to. All right. All right. 
Also, could you say that people coming to Christ today is somewhat similar to how the Bible was written? People from all over the world, from different walks of life and different experiences, and yet they all come to Christ and believe him to be the one true Savior, never contradicting, contradicting each other. Yeah, that's a great observation. Uh, I heard one atheist say the Bible was written by ignorant peasants. I'm like, you ever heard of King David? Have you read his stuff? It's some of the greatest poetry in the world. King Solomon, wisest man, one of the richest men ever lived. Luke was a physician. Paul had three PhDs. I mean, these were intelligent people. And there were poor people who read, read the Bible. It was all different walks of life, all writing and, and everything in total harmony without contradiction. So, yeah, that's a, a wonderful observation. Okay. Um, sorry, there's a couple. That, okay. Someone I care about has started following and donating money to a teacher that I think is false. How can I help them see this false teacher for what they are? Hmm. Number one, with patience. For sure. Um, sometimes when we know we're right about something, we get a little too zealous. I do that a lot. We get a little too energetic or emotional, and that will put people in a defensive position. One of the ways to disarm somebody from being defensive is ask questions. Say, well, why do you like this person? Why do you do this? Do you think there's anything that he just not biblical? And of course, without knowing specifically what the unbiblical things are, um, I don't know how, what verses to take you to, but if there's, you need to probably do some research, say, well, what do you think about this verse right here? Like there's a lot of false teachers who say that Jesus descended down into, went down into hell and was tortured by demons while he was in the grave for three days to pay for your sins. Well, first of all, it's nowhere in the Bible. Number two, when Jesus on the cross said, it is what? Finished. Finished. Mm -hmm. He was done paying for your sins there. He didn't need to suffer anymore after that. In fact, the Bible says he descended into the depths of the earth to lead the captivities captive, to take the believers out of paradise and take them to heaven. If Jesus suffered in hell at the, being tortured by demons for three days and three nights, why did he say to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise? Not in hell. Jesus went to paradise, took the believers there, took them to heaven in their spiritual bodies. So uh, that would be an example. If they believe that, then show them those verses. But doing it lovingly, patiently, and by all means, pray first, because if it's a spiritual blindness, their heart needs to be open, and only the Holy Spirit can do that. Amen. Any other questions? Yeah. I've never understood the year of Jubilee. That's great that debts are, are get forgiven and land return. But what about the guy that lent the money and the guy that bought the land? Seems like a really terrible deal for those guys. Yeah. In fact, people, it, it makes sense, except people would structure the deals based on that. See, like, like if you're two years away from the Jubilee, then you're going to lease the land for two years at that price. You know, when people lease longer, you give them a better price. When you know it's going to be shorter, you, t you raise the price. And if somebody's going to loan money, they might not be inclined. Hey, Jubilee's in three months. I don't think I'll loan this. Or there's going to be an exorbitant fee on the front end. So people, the economy would give and take with that. And people would structure it that way. So it's like always leasing, never really purchasing. A lot of times, yes. Yeah. And then you'd you say, hey, I want to sell you a slave or a servant, which slavery in the Bible is way different than Western American slavery. Um, they'd say, hey, you can hire my servant for a year, but it's going to cost you this much because I know you, I'm going to get them back or whatever. The prices were, would be adjusted on that. And, but then the, the point of that, the bottom line is on some level, it's eventually not fair, but that's salvation. How is it that you and I, like I, let's say I get saved at nine, and I live a good life, I preach the gospel, and I try to do my best. And then a thief on the cross can be a murderer his whole life, but at the last minute say, Lord, remember me when you go into the kingdom. He's just like, okay. 
How's that fair? He got to live like a, 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 this, like the devil, and I had to work all the time because salvation's a free gift to all. And, it, and there's some point we're going to say, well, that's not fair. That's right. If it was fair, we'd all be in hell. That's true. Okay. Okay, it's amazing in verse 17, Jesus announcing the proclamation of the good news, which is the gospel. So basically, it's like, hey, you're going to hear about me. That's <laughs> yeah. like, I guess. That's, that's good. And something I, that the video elaborated on, I didn't much. Jesus read, talked about the day of redemption or the year of Jubilee, and then the day of vengeance. But he stopped before he got there. Like in the video, he said, that's in the future. See, the, the Jews had a hard time seeing Messiah coming twice, but it's very clear. He's a suffering servant and a conquering king. He comes first as a suffering servant to die for the sins of people. He comes later as a con conquering king. And that's where Jews had a hard time. They wanted, to, they wanted to be the other way around. They wanted the conquering king to kick out Rome. And Jesus is like, no, taxes aren't your problem. Sin's your problem. So any other questions? All right. Hey, so let's stand. We're going to pray. I want to invite you to join us for the baptism. You can go out this way and walk around, or you can go out this back door and walk around, but we'll, we'll meet in the fellowship hall. So if you, we'll give you a few moments to get, gather your kids and all that. We can get over there, but we don't want to miss baptizing Jaime and Sophia here in just a few moments. In fact, um, we're going to read this verse of Scripture um, together as God's blessing over us as a the church family. Join me on verse 24. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.